let me let me try and adopt a, a more of a uh, we know what the domestic challenges are let me talk about macro opportunity here and uh, the one thing that and I often talk about especially in the commodity space is China as the uh, as the ultimate determinant of, of price being the biggest uh, biggest market for for majority of our commodities that get exported from this part of the world amongst others Commodity prices remain relatively robust in recent months, oil aside, and talking solid commodity prices, largely because of the V-shaped recovery that is taking place in Asia that's China-led. Here's a quick story, and this talks to, you mentioned Roger Marco Defani talking about the last 10 years. Well, let me extend that, and let me come to the point of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, arguably is I was checking my diary, I keep pretty extensive ones. It's 20 years ago, literally to the day, October 7th, that I landed in Beijing to attend what was then the first China-Africa so-called FOCAC conference. It was this new multilateral vehicle the Chinese government had created to coordinate and direct uh, its, its foreign commercial policy vis-a-vis -vis Africa. And we traipsed off to Beijing. There were four heads of state. There were 80-odd ministers um, from the African continent. And we were all in China. And it was very clear to the Chinese that they had a very long-range strategy vis-a-vis -vis Africa. And this was largely linked to energy and commodity, commodity supply chains, security of supply. Over the course of the last 20 years, we have benefited undoubtedly as Africa, particularly South Africa, strong commodity prices driven by Chinese demand has, has, has underpinned our resources sector. But as market share, we have continued to hemorrhage of the exports of many commodities into the Chinese economy. Iron ore, prime example. I read an article earlier this week that, that Australia accounts for 62% of iron ore exports into, into China. We go back to 2000, I think we were roughly at 10% through Kumba. Now I think we're probably down to less than two, they would know. It hasn't been a demand side issue, it's been a supply side issue. So had we sat down 20 years ago as a country, as a region, and saying, well, we have this unbelievable once in a lifetime, once in, how should we say, it's never happened before in economic history, where you have an industrial revolution, literally taking place in a condensed 20-year period. That's what happened in China. This became an incredibly resource-intensive growth model, and we did not fully benefit from it. Why? Because policy uncertainty to an extent, but arguably even more so supply-side constraints, be it power, be it infrastructure. So what is um, what will happen now is commodity prices remain relatively buoyant. I looked at a, at a fantastic proxy indicator about a week ago, of year-on-year -year increases of yellow metal digger sales in China and commercial trucks. Digger sales were up over 70% year-on-year and commercial trucks over 40. Why? Because Chinese, albeit muted compared to 2008-2009 crisis, but still very strong infrastructure growth, fixed capital formation driven recovery in China. This is increasing resource intensive. And one other thing people are losing sight of, next year is an incredibly important year if you're in Beijing. The Chinese Commerce Party takes anniversaries very, very seriously. 
it's the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2021 foundation. This means that the Chinese government will engineer high GDP growth through all means possible. We will see growth in China over 5%, I would argue, GDP, and this will have a very, very negative, a very positive, sorry, very positive knock-on effect, providing a tailwind for commodity exporting economies. That's us. And we're seeing this coupling effect as China recovers in a V-shape, so you'll see a similar V uh, despite suppressive level of debt, I think, in many sub-Saharan African countries. But a V-shaped recovery, at least some tailwind, where you have commodity exporting economies into this, this Chinese growth phenomenon that will accelerate in, uh, in the coming years. So what does this mean? And Roger raised a very, very key point here, is about private involvement in infrastructure. I expect in the very near future, probably early next year, we should have sweeping liberalization. We can't use the word so much privatization, but at least private, allow private capital to play in infrastructure assets in South Africa. Think road or think rail, particularly rail and port. That's what we need to do to alleviate these supply side constraints. And Roger stating power also the obvious one. If we allow private capital to participate, this will, this, you know, bad infrastructure is very inflationary. Uh, it's very inefficient. And, and the model has proven that state utilities cannot manage effective infrastructure in this part of the world. Private capital would unlock the value further in the commodity sector going forward. This should be our absolute uh, enabling policy environment for mining moving forward. What I also expect, I think, is, and what's been spoken about is, is, is so-called balkanization or deglobalization in terms of supply chains. I think uh, another word we should use as this part of the world is we need to counter marginalization, economic marginalization. We are seeing capital retreating to primary economies, think China, think European Union and the United States. COVID-19, the future, will be a marginalization of the global South. That's Latin America, to an extent South Asia, and particularly us in Africa. We are are challenged by potential irrelevance unless we get our act together domestically. So I think this, as we're seeing this, uh, as what the Financial Times recently said, you know, there's been a supply chain for China and one for everybody else. That, that's, that, that decoupling started in maybe 2018, 2019. It's just been significantly accelerated. There's certainly an opportunity um, uh, I believe uh, for countries in this part of the world, if we're smart and agile, to do like the Vietnams, the Thailands, the Indonesias, and starting to create their own value chains away from just China. And it talks to 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 very creative uh, investment environment being created by by recipient states, and that could also support our, our domestic mining sector as well. Last point, and it's it's about this, this notion of risk on, uh, of course, with cash-strapped governments um, in this part of the world. Of course, World Bank, IMF is, uh, is seeking some um, lobbying significantly for, for debt relief from, from private creditors into Africa and also sovereigns. But I, I suspect as a result in the next you know few years going forward, these cash-strapped governments will be coming to mining, the mining sector, mining companies. Seeking, um, seeking large amounts of royalties and taxes. So that's certainly a, a risk, I think, going forward, we need to, to, to uh, flag. 
And one I think particularly is also very relevant here in South Africa. And Roger, you would certainly know a lot more about that um, than I do. But just some opening thoughts. And my concluding comment is, imagine if we are in 2000, where we did not see the most accelerated, the, we did not see the future at all of this industrial revolution that is unprecedented, never happened before, and it'll never happen again. We didn't see it in 2000. Now we're sitting in 2020, and we're still sort of, you know, debating as to whether private capital can play an infrastructure to unlock the real, the better value, enhanced value of our commodities. I think we need a, a state that is not just, uh, that is not just um, consumed with real internal challenges, real perceived or exaggerated, but sees a more macro picture here to fully understand how to strategically position our economy in the global macro.